Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. We're living in a world where humans are seen as the problem and technology as the solution. Well, not here. Team Human is a flag in the sand, an intervention by people on behalf of people, a denunciation of the fear, the labels, and the lies that are used to alienate us from one another, erode the fabric of our social reality, and pit us against one another in an ill-conceived and self-destructive competition. And for what? Total isolation masquerading as security. Well, that stops here. It's time to find the others. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, futurist and strategic consultant Ada Paris. So I will start by saying, I don't have the answers, but if I can help you think differently and think about your own biases and assumptions, then I think that's a good thing. Ada, who has much more patience for corporations than I do, will show us how to help the people inside big businesses function more like people and on behalf of people, too. At 91 episodes so far, Team Human is off and running. We'll be doing our first Team Human live in New York City with Soma Space founder Dr. Mark Filippi at the Alchemist's Kitchen on Thursday, June 21st. Our second Team Human live from London on July 9th with Pat Cadigan and Rupert Sheldrake, and another Team Human Live in New York on July 19th with our great friend Parker Posey. Tickets for all those events will be available through teamhuman.fm. And as always, are free to Team Human subscribers. Please support this show. You can get signed books, free admission to events, access to our community boards, and the satisfaction of contributing to this effort. Join us at teamhuman.fm. We're also looking to expand our terrestrial footprint. So if you know of a community, college, or public radio station that wants to air Team Human for free, please email stephen at teamhuman.fm. Whenever you're confused by something Trump is doing, remember, he's less a politician than a propagandist. Don't look to the policy for the logic driving his actions. Look at the pictures. This week, progressives are confused and outraged by the imagery coming out of Texas showing immigrant children being separated from their parents and held in detention centers. Babies crying, chain-link fence, mothers restrained by ICE agents, teens warehoused in decommissioned Walmarts. 
Surely this is enough to bring down the Trump administration or lead evangelicals and others to appreciate the hard-heartedness of his treatment of the huddled masses. But despite the outrage, despite the round-the-clock coverage, despite the YouTube videos, and despite the rush of the horrified, truth-based media to the scene of the Mexican border, or even because of it, Trump's intended propaganda is coming through loud and clear. America is being invaded by something less than human beings. On the surface level, at least to those already sympathetic to Trump, the immigrant children are not victims of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, but victims of their own parents. Smuggle your kid over an international border into a country where you're not welcome, and guess what? You're going to risk being separated from your kid like driving drunk or leaving your kid in the parking lot while you go grocery shopping, illegal immigration puts one's children at risk. The images of weeping children are meant as warnings to those thinking of setting out tomorrow or next week or next month for a stealthy border crossing into America. The risks are great. And Trump manages to generate all this fear and deterrence without shooting or electrocuting anybody. Better yet, he can blame the Democrats for not having made a deal with him on the DREAM Act. You want this horror show to stop? Accept my terms for a wall. But to understand the long-term propaganda strategy, we have to focus less on the words than the pictures. It's not about who's to blame for what. It's about recasting the immigrants as refugees and refugees as animals, prisoners, vermin, and potential terrorists. Photos of teen boys in detention centers sectioned off by chain-link fence are meant to evoke reform schools or prison cells. These are would-be members of the notorious MS-13 gang. Pictures of children of color huddled together under rescue blankets recall those of Syrian refugees fleeing war for the safety of Europe. As if to make these comparisons explicit, Trump proclaims that the United States will not be a migrant camp. It will not be a refugee holding facility. You see what's going on in Europe and around the world, and it's not going to happen here. Not on my watch. He's not just calling them poisonous snakes or animals which he has, but he's creating a situation that, however painful to watch, slowly recontextualizes human beings from America's South as animals. With enough time, our brains reconcile the images with an imaginary reality. If these people are in cages like animals, then they must be animals. It's the same strategy used to undermine the humanity of immigrants for ages, whether it's the media treatment of Albanians fleeing to Italy in the 1990s, made to appear like an invading army of rodents, or the biblical pharaoh framing his Israelite slaves as fast-replicating insects. It plays to the darkest, fear-based constructions of our primitive psyche, us or them. Forget the reality that Mexicans are actually emigrating from the U.S. back to Mexico. There's a net decrease. That more immigrants come from China and India than the South. The only way to understand the Trump administration's proposed wall is as a safety play for global warming. Instead of admitting that there's an environmental crisis underway and reducing carbon emissions, just accept the inevitable climate crisis and barricade the nation from the inevitable flow of refugees from the South. Whatever we're doing now is simply priming the American public for the inhumanity to come. The one thing that this photographic strategy doesn't take into account is the sound. Photography emphasizes distance and objectivity. It's evidence. Human faces shrunk down to the size of thumbprints, frozen in time. The sounds of the children crying reach a different part of our psyche. The cries resonate in our bodies, as surely as if the suffering children were in the same room. Sound is intimate. That's why I do radio and podcast. The sound connects us, retrieving a pre-internet, pre-printing press, pre-scribal sense of community. The net has encouraged us to use our eyes to understand the world. Pictures and text, memes. That may be great to promote ridicule and provoke fear but it's time to get beyond the images we're fed before we accept the fake news they're trying to disseminate. If it takes the sounds of crying children to wake us up from this dream of nativist superiority, 
so be it. I'm Ben Tarnoff, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Damian Williams, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Jason Louv, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Molly Wright Steenson, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Eli Pariser, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Moira Weigel, and I'm on Team Cyborg Human. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad, home to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. I first met today's guest at a Team Human live event in London. She came up after the two hours of Q&A had ended, and she really didn't have to say anything at all. Her countenance alone conveyed who and what she was. A human being so human that she appeared almost alien. Here to help reorient us to ourselves and steer us toward a better, more human future, my friend, Ada Paris. Oh my, so there's so much I want to... I wanna speak with you about i mean i think we'll let it we'll let it emerge naturally when i when i look at your bio and your history i see what to the to the naive eye looks like a a disparate range of of talents and trainings from reiki training to futurism to brand identity which is sort of an awful way of putting it to humanism and almost like life and corporate coaching. I mean, are, are you essentially, uh, it feels to me like what you're doing is sort of bringing Reiki to, uh, Reiki to business and economics in some ways. Um, it's interesting because I, you know, if you look at my professional career, I find it, dif- I found it difficult to explain what I do and the value that I can bring. Um, so when I go to events and people try and introduce me, they start with, you, you do Reiki, you do this and do that. And I think for over the last couple of years, what's really happened is, you know, as a child, I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, and I was into quant- physics and science and I was a hippie and I thought that I had to keep those things very separate. Mm. And now what's happened is I've been able to bring them all together. And so I think what I do is whether it's Reiki or... I think it's my understanding of what mindfulness is. And to me, mindfulness is taking a moment to really stop and look at yourself, observe yourself. And I think that that's what I do. I help businesses and people really stop and look at who they are and think about why they're doing what they they want to do and try and create a path for change for themselves and ultimately to make the world a better place, to be more human. So do you go to companies that are doing evil things and try to make them less so um i suppose i think we've had this conversation before about (laughs) evil things and companies i think i now come from a place where i remind companies that they are made of humans and so any company their first customer because they are businesses ultimately their first customer are their employees right and then when i look at you know the futurist stuff that i've been doing and you know, the future of work and people talking about artificial intelligence is going to take over the world and it's all bad and evil. And I say, well, there is an element that artificial intelligence and technology is going to change the way that we work. But bigger than that, if you take a philosophical viewpoint, our understanding of what work is going to be is going to change. And so for me, there's going to be, you're going to have the bit that's automated and that's the tech bit. But what's left is this real human element And so how do you then prepare organisations and get them to take responsibility for the fact that our understanding of work is going to change? And I think you and I had a conversation before that when you take out that bit that is automated and repetitive, what's left is kind of humanity and leisure. And that's what potentially businesses can be and organisations can be. So that's my driving point is that they, it's interesting that, Come, more and more companies are finding me now. And the, the fact that they're open to have those conversations means that I'm more likely to, to try and start working with them. Right. And in some ways, it seems like your work, it's if, if you're rehumanizing 
businesses or people in them, especially the the people who are supposed to be running them. If you put them more in touch with what is it they really want? What is it they really want to offer? How do they want to feel good when they get up in the morning? Then you don't have to be moralizing from the outside about, well, you know, what is your global supply chain policy? What is your labor this? So you're not coming from the problem, but from the, how do you want to feel? And yeah. then they start seeing it themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always, I think whenever I work with a company, I always start by working with the individuals and getting them to understand who they are and why they are, what are their personal motivations. Um, because I think that's fundamentally everybody wants to, well, no, most people, I correct myself there. Most people want to feel good. (laughs) (laughs) Most people want to feel good about what they want to do. And I think with all the big macro changes that are happening in the world, more and more people are questioning what's my purpose. And, you know, I've been doing this, I've been working in this job for years. I'm great at what I'm doing, but it's kind of soulless but I'm still on this hamster wheel and I want to get off or at least take one foot off. And so I, however, meet those people and that's how we start the conversations. So I, I sometimes have these sort of conversations. I don't go in as deep as you do. I've got somehow just less tolerance for it or less patience. And I just, I occupy a different place in the culture. I'm okay with that. But when I have these conversations, I'll, I'll get in a conversation with some guy who runs some company or whatever, and he'll be like, well, yeah, Doug, sure. I'd love to be sourcing my stuff from some eco-friendly thing or use local workers and all that, but my competition is sourcing it from China, the cheapest thing and all that, and it works well enough to get sold at Walmart. Um, if I don't compete like that, I'm going to go out of business. Yeah, I suppose I suppose some of it starts from where I meet these people because it's less about so I'm very few people I meet that I have these business kind of relationships with is in a traditional business environment. So I hate networking events. It's, you know, I will meet people socially, you know, at various things and we generally start those conversations as human as you know, what interests you. Um one of my questions to people is usually if money was no object what would you be do- if money was no object what would you be doing and generally it's a lot different than what they're actually doing at the moment and so having those kind of real personal conversations i get into very quickly people get into well you know yes we ultimately as a business this is our supply chain and this is what we're doing but you know if i could change one thing it would be this and so those conversations about supply chain are very very later on down the the grand scheme of things, I suppose it's, I bring in the tech side of it and the futurist side and saying, well, yes, but who you think your competition is now could be very different in the future. And so if you expand your mind in thinking about who potentially could be your competition and what's your role and responsibility within that, that's where they start to think, start to think differently. So when you, when you kind of future cast for them, I mean, it's, it's, I guess what you do is you sort of help reveal to them, well, this is what automation might do to your industry or what robots might. Or So, for example, you know, a, a big thing for me is about the ethics of artificial intelligence. And, you know, I've been asked to do talks about, as an example, is I, I've been asked to do talks about being a black woman in tech. I go, I'm not going to do that anymore because it's not, you know. Being it, a black woman in tech. Yes. Because tech treats black women differently. That's a whole. Well, actually, it does. <laughs> it is. It, but but it, you know, my point is yes. You know, women are treated differently, and black women and people of color are treated differently. But it's bigger than just being a black woman in tech. The way that I approached it was said, well, why don't I talk about the inequality that innovation and entrepreneurship can create, and especially back home, you know, talking with some of my friends who are human rights barristers and, you know, having, bringing that wealth of conversation and insights that they probably wouldn't think of. So I've had a great conversation with a friend who is a behavioural geneticist and we had a great 45-minute conversation around the ethics of gene testing. And what we did is we compared the ethics of gene testing with the ethics of AI because, you know, People talk about there's all this data and this is what's going into the artificial intelligence. And I said, well, you know, do people remember the um, IQ tests? 
that, you know, years ago, and probably some people still use them, that the IQ tests were biased. And it wasn't just about the fact that people are doing the tests and getting the results. It's the data and the questions, the way the questions were posed, were biased in the first place. And I, my fear is that with artificial intelligence, there's some of that going on, that the data that's being used to program the, the artificial intelligence could have biases in there in the first place. And the people that are programming them have their own biases. So in order to try and change all of that, you need to have diverse people within the at the at the supply end at the end of creation rather than just at the, the last point right i mean that's always been my thing people think i'm against technology oh i'm not yeah i've never really been against technology so much as what are we programming it to do where does the information come from and who who's doing the programming right so if as apparently it did if google images has trouble distinguishing between apes and black people. Is that because Google has a problem or the camera has a problem? Or, or the, the programming? The, the, pro the people who, who made the algorithm and what do they think looks like a human? Exactly. And I think that that's, those are the kind of conversations that I'm having or have been having with people. That You have to think about all those things. Right, and they act as if, well, this was machine learning, so it was pure. And it, <laughs> yeah, but the machine is only learning from the people who program it in the first place. Right, or the people it's watching. Yes. You so know, we'll get, you know, or, the, or the classifications that people put in. Right, right. So if, you know, if 30% of Americans or more, you know, uh, don't believe in evolution or don't believe in climate change, then in theory, 30% of the algorithms won't either. I right? mean, so I'll give you an example. I was driving with some friends to a festival and we were using Waze, the, the app. And, you know, it's, it's kind of um, crowdsourced and people update. So as we're driving, there was a lot of traffic and it flashed up and said animals at the side of the road. So I kind of went, oh, what kind of animals? It's cows, what have you. And I looked as we drove past and there was a group of Africans in traditional wear on the side of the road and somebody had programmed that in to say animals. And I was so mad. But that's an example of when it started, what could, what's happening or what could be happening. I know you want to go back and look at the social like, oh social media accounts of who it was. Are they Brexiters? Oh, who are they? Oh God, I'm so angry. But that, as with my friend who wasn't in tech, I said, that's an example of what is happening unless we continue having these conversations and people like you and I do, do what you're doing with Team Human. Oh, it's like ways trolling. I know. I know you can imagine how mad I was. Well, and you know that there were other guys driving by in their car yeah. going, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, yeah. People were laughing. Yeah. But I just went, oh, my God. This is a real live version of what is happening. Right. And you actually get, I mean, the, the, the beauty of the surveillance technology is we can surveil on each other in a certain way. You can actually see, oh, this is, yes. this is what they're talking in those bars that I'm not allowed to go in still. This is. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's so much, I think for me, and I think that's how I humanize technology in that, you know, I see these patterns and I look at these examples and then I just get other people to think about them. So when I do a talk or a workshop, I always start by saying, you know, I'm a storyteller. And the, one of my favourite quotes is, the purpose of a storyteller is not to tell you what to think, but to give you things to think upon. And so I always start by saying, I don't have the answers, but if I can help you think differently and think about your own biases and assumptions, then I think that's a good thing. Yeah, that makes me feel a little better about stories. I've been, I don't know, this last six months or so, I've been uh, in a real, and it sounds silly to be so soul searching about this, but I've been trying to decide whether to help develop new narratives, new stories by which people can understand our, our, our journey and our future as humans, or to liberate people from narratives altogether, you know, because I, I certainly know growing up the narratives were used to program me with Western values and to get a job and to go to the right college and the stories are used by the Trump side, the Clinton side, every side to hoodwink people. 
And you could say, look, there is no, I mean, everything we know, it's just, it's just happening. This is chaotic. This is self-organizing insanity. But without a story, people, it's so hopeless. And what are we working towards? What are we doing? I think, I think life is just stories. I mean, that's how we've always communicated. So I teach on a social media course at Goldsmiths Uni, and I teach the brand identity bit. And I always start by saying, you know, we're 21st century cave painters. Because when we first discovered the cave paintings, we just thought they were art until we started traveling around. And then we realized there were stories and they connected. And when we use social media, for example, you know, people have this is who I am on Facebook and this is who I am on LinkedIn and this is who I am on Instagram. They're very separate stories. So I say I turn it around and say, how will people understand who you are? in the future, if you're having these very different stories, you're just pushing out all these different disparate bits of information. And it's your responsibility to take that power and that control back and create a connected story of who you are. Well, it's interesting because I've always thought, say, we take the Facebook profile and the metaphor I always used for it was this sort of mirror, the portrait, false mirror. But if you're thinking about, thinking about it as a story instead, here I'm going to tell a story about myself. I'm this person who likes these books, and and there's a timeline on it too. So I had this girlfriend, then that one, then married, then child. And you still are assembling. It's storytelling about who I am or my LinkedIn. These are the jobs I've had, the people I've been connected to. But the tools, though, then force me or encourage me to tell stories in certain ways. Yeah. So right now, I have two different friends who've both recently asked me for um, LinkedIn endorsements. And I don't want to start giving LinkedIn endorsements because I already accepted everyone who's ever asked me to be a friend on LinkedIn as friends. So now I'm going to have to endorse people I've never met? Or do I just endorse everybody? Or make a rule, I'll endorse nobody? Yeah, I, I, I have a similar thing where, you know, because somebody's, I've added somebody on LinkedIn, they will ask, oh, can you endorse me for working at this place? And I say, well, number one, I've, I've never worked with you in that capacity. So I can't endorse you. And actually that's, by me doing that, that's changing, that's adding an element to my own personal right. story that may not be true, which I'm very careful about my own personal story. You know, I suppose the stuff that I share is, is an extension of who I am rather than, oh, I'm going to post this because I think that I'm going to get this amount of likes, because I think that's all a load of crap, the whole likes thing. Yeah. I mean, it's real easy. It takes you outside of yourself really quickly. I know, I just did a a monologue last week where I talked a little bit about how I had this wrong fact in a book. Yeah. And uh, I got a bunch of emails back from people saying gosh thank you for admitting the thing and i was like hey, you can't believe you did that you know what what that does to your reputation for someone to, it's like yeah i had something similar it's like but it's of course i'm gonna yeah. of course i'm gonna do that yeah i had something similar i um i was on the tube the subway uh, and there was a guy sat opposite me who was man spreading uh, and he had shorts on. And he was taking quite great pleasure in the fact that he was doing this opposite me. And it was quite packed, so I couldn't move. And then he, you know, he then lifted his leg up even higher. And I just went, oh, my God, this Could is... Could you see the a- whole thing? No, luckily I couldn't. But okay. it, it was... It- <laughs> but I just went, this is a violation. I was really angry. So I took a photo of him. And then I posted it on Facebook. And I went, I'm really furious, blah, blah, blah. Um <laughs> And some of my friends came on and kind of had this conversation about, oh, my God, he's a typical hipster, blah, blah, blah. But a couple of friends posted and said, you didn't have his permission to post his photo. And you're somebody who is very unapologetically yourself and authentic. And it feels quite weird. And, you know, I took a moment, I reflected and went, actually, you know what, that's wrong. Because... I know that I don't like it when people take photos of me and I worry about where those photos are going. So I took the photo down and I did a post and I said, I've, you know, I've checked myself and thank you to those two friends who called me out because I'm not above admitting when I'm wrong. And it was wrong of me to do that. And then suddenly people go, oh my God, it's so nice that you can actually, it's a lot of, it's made me respect you more because you've actually called yourself out on behavior that you wouldn't want someone to do to you. 
Now, I didn't pre-think that, oh, people are going to yeah. say, this is great. It just, it didn't sit well with me. And I'm, people can come to me and say, I think that's wrong. Ultimately, I'm going to make up my own mind, but it didn't sit well. I mean, it feels like we're, we're in a time when we more than ever need to be able to do that because every little thing we do is recorded for posterity now. You know, I've been watching uh, some of Westworld, and while I, I don't like a lot of it, I do like the, the way it, it presents the digital media environment as a place where your memories, all your memories can come back. Everything is recorded. This whole thing is happening in the memory of machines and yes. can be recalled. And if it can come back with perfect fidelity, then either you have to live perfectly from the time you're a baby or we've got to live in a society where people can be forgiven yeah. their transgressions. Yeah. I mean, I read an article this morning um, that was talking about the fact that your personal space now is not your physical space, it's a data space. Mm. Because your people have to remember that even if, if I'm sending a text message to you, that information goes into the phone, it goes into the cloud, it goes all of, through, through all this kind of process before it gets to you. And so that becomes part of your personal space. And it's a different way of thinking about the way that we share information and being careful of what we do put out there. So anything I put out there, I should be proud. I shouldn't have to fear that it's going to come back and bite me on the arse. It's, I'm doing it because I believe in it and I think that, you know, this is what, this is, it represents who I am. Of course, you know, sometimes like the example I've just given, you know, we, we're human, so sometimes we do make mistakes, but I'm not above admitting that that's what I've done. It's just so much more leverage now than it was. I mean, I'm thinking of like, uh, uh, you know, like Sunday in the Park with George, you know, when people would have their public self, they'd put on a certain clothing, maybe they would choose who they're going to walk with yeah. and who they're walking with or whether they're on a bike or with their dog and all that can be scandalous, you know, to the other people. You made this mistake or you wore a black hat instead of a red hat or whatever you did or a bustle instead of a flat skirt. But isn't that, isn't that, isn't that sad that the worry about uh, the judgment of others? Well, it used to be, I mean, we accepted that our, our, our public, any public appearance by a person on a Sunday in a park was performative. Yes. In a certain way that that being on Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or anywhere else is also performative, except it's performative in front of potentially millions of people. One wrong thing, you know, your pants are down in the wrong way. You're suddenly famous. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a scarier way to move. I mean, you you're what I'm liking about what you're saying is is you're it sounds almost transhumanist, but with a human uh, a human center to it is like all these changes are happening. We're going to be learning to negotiate in these different spaces. The more of our humanity we can bring with us yeah. into this next place, the better off we're going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the transhumanism bit because, so I have just joined, joined the board of a company called, I saw this thing. Yeah. Cyborg Nest. Yeah, I wrote that down. <laughs> Cyborg Nest. I was like, what is this? So Cyborg Nest are a... Uh, they hatch baby little cyborgs. No. <laughs> Although when I did have the first conversation with them, I did quote the Borg. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm such a geek. Um, but it, they are a company who their first um, piece of tech was uh, called North Sense. And what it is, it's, it's a piece of tech that you implanted into your chest. And it turns you, my description is it turns you into a human compass. What it's actually doing is it's looking at the the fact that birds can migrate by connecting with understanding magnetic north. And so what this tech does is when you're near magnetic north, it vibrates. And so there's no data, but your brain starts to learn where north is. And so you start to... It vibrates really subtly, I guess. Yeah, not really, enough yeah, you're no, feeling it. Nobody, <laughs> little, yeah. <laughs> Lots of people just can vibrate. Can we please walk in another direction right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't when I'm raising north. But what it does is it... The, and, you know... I have a really bad sense of direction and I think it's great that it's what it does is it allows you to start to understand where North is. But what's been interesting speaking with the guys is that they're starting to form and they've got all sorts of people who have these um, implants in their chest and it's helping them to build these emotional relationships with certain locations, which I never even thought of. 
But for me, you know, some people find it weird that I've joined the board of Cyborg Nest because I am such a hippie. Right, and they're I, making robot people. Yeah, well, and I said, well, you know, but <laughs> with for them, one of the things, and I spoke to all the founders, and it was about a real personal connection with all of them and understanding why. They um, are looking at how you can use technology to become more human. So to connect with your other senses. You know, so looking at birds and these, this is how they do it. And they're looking at how can you use tech to do that. On the other side, you know, you've got the hippies. And I I say that very fondly as one. Using meditation and ayahuasca and all those things. And I had this moment of clarity that I just went, oh my God, the transhumanists and the hippies are trying to do the same thing. They're trying to enhance humanity but they're coming at it from very different standpoints. And I think I had the conversation with you that my friend and I came up with this term, cyborg shaman. That Those are the people that they're trying to do the same thing, enhance humanity. And I'm not afraid of exploring what that means because I am a futurist and I do, you know, I'm not against technology, but I'm also a humanist and looking at how can I understand and bring those two things together. I mean, I'm guessing the compass is just one of many possible yeah, ideas. Yeah, so they're but working they're, on the new one at the moment. They're basically into sort of implants and enhancements, yeah. physical things that you do. Yeah. Now, I don't see you as the kind of person who would want a compass in you. No, not a compass. But I'm, I'm very open with the guys. I'm very curious about how that happens because, you know, I spoke. You know, I was speaking to my mum uh, about cyborgs and she listened to the podcast that I did on it and we were having this conversation about what is a cyborg and you know she as she said well as an ex-nurse I understand that it's about the technology that's helping enhance or repair so in that sense pacemakers people who have pacemakers and people who have cochlear implants are cyborgs for want of a better way of putting it so maybe there will come a time when it feels more normal. I'm not sure where I stand on that. But then I have piercings and tattoos and I have, you know, enhancements and I wear glasses. So I'm open-minded. I'm not putting the barrier down. I'm open-minded to seeing what that means and where it goes and what it means for me. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I'm trying to be open-minded and then I find some of my arguments then are, are almost like look there's a billion people below the poverty line right now just do we want to spend our time figuring out how to put compasses in people or just how to get water to people I mean well yes and I think how do we get water to people that need it and I think it's okay to have all these different kind of conversations I don't think well, for me, I don't think it's one versus the other. Right. Because they don't exist in isolation. And maybe, you know, I'm I'm very good at connecting patterns and recognizing patterns. And maybe by looking at one, I may have an idea for the other or right. about how to connect people. Right. I mean, we don't criticize a poet for sitting and writing poetry in Boulder, Colorado, while yeah. someone's starving in, in Botswana. Yeah but we may criticize someone for writing a computer game or something. Yeah. But I suppose then that's another element of what I do is I love curating, bringing together interesting people. So back in London, I started a event called the art of conversation. Um, it actually started as last, last year, my birthday. And normally I'll do a big birthday thing. And I went, oh, I'm too busy. And I just want to bring together the really interesting people that I've met at festivals and cabarets and tech and all sorts of stuff. And so what I did is I said, it's not going to be about the DJs and it's not about the music. It's about, and it's not about technology because I'm on so many WhatsApp groups that my brain just feels filled with all the conversations. So I actually just put most of them on mute and then dip in and kind of dip back out. And so I did this event where it was 150 people and I had a playlist that I'd been making since 2007 of all the music that's instrumental in my life and some of it reminded me of some of the people in the room. And I just went, I just want you to talk. And they had such a good time. They said to me, well, we'd love you to do some more. And so I then said, well, what is this really about? It's about in real life conversation. 
And so that's why it's called the Art of Conversation. And it's really simple. The rules are no mobile phones, you know, unless at the end you're kind of swapping contact details. No networking, no business pitching, no bullshit, no DJs, no photographs. It's just in real life conversation. So I've done three this year. Um, I'm hosting a mini one here tonight in New York. Um, and it's really simple. And you get people who are introverts coming along again. You've made it really simple. So what, do 150 people speak at the same time? Yeah, it's just, so it's just generally in a, in a members club or an art, like at home. It's in um, one of my members clubs, um, which is an art gallery. And so we did one last week. And what we did is, I think that was a smaller one. So there are about 50 people. And I did a five-minute introduction of why I'm doing it. And, you know, I don't charge. It's not about making money. It's just, I get really happy seeing people who have never met before, or some of my friends having these deep in conversations. And so then we had a guy who teaches the over 50s to sing. He says, because people want to use their voices. So he had us all singing. And people were so, by the time you finish singing, people are ready for conversation. And it's great because you'll have, you have all these different people from disparate backgrounds talking about themselves and life and then they can go off and do things and almost in my head it's making those making serendipity happen is what I'm trying to do with those or helping people to recognize I think serendipity happens all the time I just think that we're so busy head down in mobile phones right and this is an opportunity to someone said it the other night that I'm giving people permission to put their phones down for a couple of hours. And, you know, by just saying you cannot use your phone, they're going, oh, it's okay. I'm not going to check Facebook and see how many likes I've got on this Instagram post. It's really interesting because in the early 90s, when we first got, even before the web, but Veronica and FTP and we're bouncing around the net, and the early web too, the, the, the main thing people talked about the main feature of the net was serendipity, that it reintroduced serendipity and chance into people's lives. Oh, here's a blog roll. I'm going to hop from here to there to here. And it became so much more channeled. And then real life became so much more random. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that we have got this dependence on what we call technology. When you look at what the word actually means, it's art and craft and processes language even. Uh, yeah and so if that's the basis of what technology means then why can't humans be that and why can't we put a dependency on human connections that and helping to solve our own uh, you know bigger problems than just going right i'm going to go into google the way i got down here today i'm going to go on city mapper i can actually ask people Right. And that's where I get concerned about implanting a compass into my body. Because what if there's a real compass in my body? Well, that's why the cyborg shaman, because, you know, you've got either side of the spectrum. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other. You've got, you know, I do sound meditations and a Reiki practitioner and, you know, all sorts of stuff. You know, but also I'm curious, I'm passionately curious about the tech. And the implications of that. And so more and more I'm having conversations or connecting those people from probably, well, some quite diverse worlds and saying, come together and have those conversations because you may find some more similarities than differences. And those similarities, bringing those people together in that same room, you know, when I do an event like that, they, you know, they. I love the fact that people come up to me and go, oh my God, everyone's so wonderful. They've got these great backgrounds, but they're brilliant. I'm saying, yeah, but so are you. And, oh, I've realized that I know this person from, you know, this is how we're connected. So it's gone from six degrees of separation to two. And if I can help some of that, then yeah. I enjoy it. I mean, there is this kind of false binary of, I mean, I remember even when I'd read about early LSD culture, psychedelic culture, there's sort of these New York City LSD post-beatnik 
moderns, and then there are these West Coast mushroom-taking hippie crusties. And in in the UK, in the early rave scene, there were sort of the techno shamanic yeah. ones, yeah. and and it, there were there were like club kid futurism ones. But then the Fraser Clark and Evolution, and you'd go to Camden Lock, and everyone's dancing in dirt with yep. dreadlocks and stuff, going for the same thing, but with sort of Synthetics yep. and organics, and, and, that, and, and that's that's that was the, kind of the biggest realization I had recently, um, is that people are going. A lot of people are going for the same thing, but they're doing it in their own way. And who am I to judge which one is right and wrong? I can make a decision for myself, but at this moment, I feel like I'm still in my, I'm probably in my research phase of right. trying to understand what that is. So I can't make a decision either way. And if I look at my own life, you know, I think that's what I did when I was younger. I was, right, I'm into science and I'm into this, but I can't do both at the same time. And there's space for them to coexist. Yeah, I felt the same way. It was like, am I going to do theater or be a doctor? Yeah. And it's like, well, Chekhov was both. Yeah. Shaw was both. You yeah. know, the, the best were the operating theater. Oh, my gosh. It's one but thing. The, the new polymath. I mean, as far as Team Human's concerned, I think the, the majority are more unpluggers than plug-inners. Yeah. The people who feel, oh my God, what, what the net's done and digital's done. I want to return to my organic relationships. Yeah. I want a garden. I want permaculture. I want organic food. Yeah, I want, and I, I want eye contact and all that. Yeah. And I I don't think that it's it's that Team Human is anti-tech so much as, you know, I just finished the book really a couple of months ago and I, I kind of had to come down somewhere on on this question, and I tried to to articulate it more that you know it, it's not a matter of not moving forward with technology, but retrieving and bringing forward the values that we yes. want to into yeah. this next realm. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things that I've been doing is uh, building what I'm fondly calling a ethical, human-centered MBA type program, and it's a twelve-month program. It's you know the modules are ethics and philosophy and new economic models and power and user design and all those things because I think that those are the values and those are the ways that people can think and then they can make decisions for themselves about where they go but you know for all my talk about technology I'm a hippie at heart you know I want to you know I want to live in the country I Oh, you know, I'm very conscious about the food that I eat and recycling and all those things. And they and more. It's interesting that more and more I get into understanding the tech. So the whole cyborg nest and all of that. I'm also retreating on the other side. I'm going, well, these are the things that are really important to me. You know, the understanding that I don't need to eat as much food as I do because it's there. And I'm making a conscious choice. So I, I do say I'm a food snob. I'm co- making a conscious choice about understanding the supply chain of how my food gets to me and having in real life conversations and unplugging and having a digital detox. All those things are just as important to me. And probably more so as I, you know, really look into that the other side. Right. Well, so once you become slightly aware of tech, you realize we're living in it, you know. That, that an organic experience really needs to be understood for the, how sacred it really is. Yeah, I mean, I, I have, you know, Apple TV at home, but I also went out and bought a 1959 Emerson record player. And there's great beauty in putting on some vinyl and hearing that kind of fried egg crackly <laughs> sound. I'm like, ah, oh, but I have a Spotify account that I've maxed out. <laughs> you seem to be generally hopeful about the future of humanity. Do you do you think that we're in the midst or the end of an extinction event? That this is it? Or do you feel like we're going to swim along somehow? Um, I think more conversations like this uh, keep me hopeful. Um, you know, as I said, that whole serendipity bit of meeting um, and having conversations, honest conversations with people who... You know, even in some of the businesses that I work with, though that realization that we are human, it makes me feel better. Uh, you know, but I'm I'm hopeful. I I am hopeful. But I think that 
that hope has come also from me deciding, making a conscious decision that I'm not going to be an armchair revolutionary anymore. I'm going to get up and I'm going to talk and I'm going to share ideas because that's when I find, you know, the find the others and have those conversations and create, curate things like the art of conversation for some of that to happen. That's what makes me hopeful. And part of that is, you know, start the domino effect. It's got to start somewhere. And if I can play a small part in that, then I'm more than happy. Yeah. Well, someone tipped me, I guess. So I'm I'm in the falling dominoes. It's <laughs> all good. That makes me a little more hopeful, too. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was futurist and strategic consultant Ada Paris. You can find more of Ada's thinking and writing at adaparis.com. That's A-D-A-H-P-A-R-R-I-S. We'll be back in the basement media squad at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism next week with more of humanity's strange and wonderful efforts at evolution. We are entirely worker and listener supported. You can join the team by subscribing at Patreon. You can also help the show by reviewing Team Human on iTunes. We put a link in the episode description in your podcast player. We're also broadcasting on a few college and community stations. If you want us on yours, please email stephen at teamhuman.fm. That's stephen with a ph at teamhuman.fm. This show is, after all, produced and engineered by Stephen Bartolome. This is Team Human, our last best hope for peace. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.